the cup and the leaf all to be one. Everyone knows there's a job to be done. And with a team so fine, I'm proud of mine. We'll be singing the song. Dunfermline Athletic Former Players Association podcast is sponsored by Starna Apparel. Affordable and stylish clothing born on the terraces. Visit their website, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Dunfermline Athletic Former Players Association podcast, Walking Down Holby Road, where we will reminisce about yesteryear at East End Park and the players who have been lucky enough to wear the famous black and white stripes. Complementing the excellent video interviews currently done by the Dunfermline Athletic Heritage Trust. In each episode we will speak to a former player and delve into their career in football and in particular their time spent at East End Park. I'm your host Mikey Mokkevich and on this episode we speak to a proper club legend, Ian Westwater. Ian started his senior career at Hearts in 1979 before moving to the Pars in 1985. Westie would make over 300 first-team appearances in Scottish football, 13 years of which were spent at East End Park. So sit back, grab a bovril and enjoy this one with Ian Westwater. So Ian, thanks very much for joining us on episode one of Walking Down the Hobbyth Road, the new podcast from the Dunfermline Athletic Former Players Association. Thanks for joining us, how are you doing? I'm really good, thanks. Eh? Looking forward to this. I've been talking about it for a few while, so it'll be interesting to get it through. Brilliant. We'll start off, you were born in Loughborough in Leicestershire. Aye. Not, not a lot of people realise you're born I'm in England. Born so. in England, eh? we, we bit of a funny story, football funny story with that. My, my dad, David, he was a professional footballer as well. He was part-time, he played for um, Arbroath and, and Queen of the South for a wee spell. But he had really bad injuries, uh, he had double compound fracture in his leg. Uh, so my dad almost had to retire through um, uh, bad injuries. So he was 27 and he got a job down south. He was originally from, from Glasgow. So his job took him down south. And two years later, uh, I was born and that's why I was born down in England. But uh, the funny football story behind that is if you move on about 15 years later, I was back living in, in Edinburgh at this time with my dad and my mum and, and my older brother. And by this time, I'd be played a wee bit success with with the football with Salveston Football Club, and uh, I'd been touted to to play for the Scottish Schoolboys. So um, I got selected for the Scottish Schoolboys, uh, and then just be the before the first game of playing for Scotland, I got a letter into the school from the English Football Association, realised that I played for I was sorry I was born in England and I qualified for for the English FA as well. Wow. Um, but my dad ripped up the letter, as you can imagine, being a, a good Scotsman and decided there's no son of his ever going to be playing for England. So, so a, a quirky world, I possibly could have played for England rather than Scotland. Brilliant. And going, going back a wee bit, what, what's your early memories of football as a child? I think my, my, my earliest memories is 
probably playing with my dad and my brother, we didn't really go to football playing schools, um, just the quirk of where we, we stayed and lived. But my dad was always really keen on the football and he was a goalkeeper as well. So um, it was always, and interestingly enough, I never ever, as everybody will testify to know, I never ever played outfield in my life. I was always a goalie. I wasn't even one of these lads that, as a, as a goalie, wanted to play up front at training or anything like that. I was always, I was always a goalie. So, so from about you know eight, nine, ten years old, I always wanted to be following my dad's footsteps, and then um, played for the, the local primary school team. And then at that time, um, I wasn't playing for a boys' club, but again, I got scouted for Salvison Boys' Club in Edinburgh, and I joined Salvison Boys' Club at uh, under 11s. Brilliant. And uh, Salveston's obviously a, a big football name in, in Edinburgh. Uh, what what kind of names and players were, were there at, at your time so to make it? So we had, a, a, a again, a bit of a quirk of, of fate within our football club at uh, Salveston. We competed in the Edinburgh Juvenile League and we won the Edinburgh Juvenile League at under 12s, 13s, 14s, 15s and 16s. The East of Scotland Cup, 12, 13s, 14s, 15s and 16s, and the Scottish Cup, 12. Incredible. We, we, so we won the treble uh, five years running, and when we, we, when we all left, um, under, you know, under 16 going into under 17, and we got a plaque each saying we were the invincible team. Um, we, we got In those five years, uh, my team got beat four times, and three of those times I was playing for the Scottish schoolboys, so I couldn't play. <laughs> so uh, we only got beat once in a competitive game. And uh, you asked about who, who else was part of that mm. team. So hopefully the listeners will probably remember where uh, Davy Bowman, who had a, a, a long career, probably best known for being at Dundee United. Uh, Gary Mackay, who obviously almost stayed at Hearts for his full career, apart from a wee late stage at uh, Airdrie. Myself, uh, John Robertson, he was there for a couple of years. And also... Um, a couple of the lads that went from uh, us to Hibs, Carlo Crowler, Jimmy Doig and, and Gordon Byrne. We also had a, a guy called George Mulligan that went down to Bolton Wanderers as well. Two other guys could have gone full-time, mm-hmm. um, but they wanted to go to university, and so they didn't go full-time. But one one guy, and again, some of the listeners may remember this if they've got an affiliation to Hearts, was a guy called Stuart Gold. Now, Stuart Gold was a right-back. He was six foot, but nine stone soaking wet. And he signed for Hearts full time. So uh, he was one of the guys that, that signed with myself and David Bowman and Gary Mackay. But however, for whatever he could, he could never put on a bit of bulk. Mm-hmm. So Alec McDonald was the manager and said that he didn't think he was big enough to, to compete in the Premier League. So anyway, the, he got released and he ended up going to Derry City in Ireland. Right and had a full career at Derry and ended up being the player of Ireland a few times and captain of Derry City. So that Salveson Boys Club side, it was a, a, almost a freak yeah. that we, so many players went full-time, almost un, unheard of, to be honest with you. It's got such a rich history, though, hasn't aye, it? Boys aye. Club football in Yeah, Edinburgh. absolutely. I think, you know, Tynecastle Boys Club, Hutchie Vale, yeah. you know, Merson, Adina Hibs, you know, that was all the you know competition that we, we had. You know, my, the peers that I played against that people maybe know from, from the goalkeeping side was... Uh, Gordon Marshall, uh, he was he was the one of my peers, and a lad called uh, Alec McGregor, who is Alan McGregor's dad. Right. So that was a quirk as well. So I uh, so. So when you were at Salveston, obviously a lot of success for you guys. Did you have opportunities to go on trial with, with pro clubs or? Yeah, um, I did, and I was I was lucky enough. I, I was training one night a week at Hearts and one night a week at Hibs from fourteen onwards. There wasn't any so much uh, specialist goalkeeping coaching then, unfortunately, Mikey. So it was just training with the boys more than anything else. 
but then when we had the, the school holidays, there was always uh, trials and week trials here there, and everywhere. And the reason I signed for Hearts was, was quite a simple one. And it was my mum that forced the issue. Because uh, when I was under 15, that summer holiday, this was my school summer holiday. The first week, so this was six weeks running, by the way, Rangers the first week, Celtic the second week, Dundee United the third week, and I don't know where you, you can remember, put your mind memory that far back but that was kind of 78, 79 when mm -hmm. Dundee United and Aberdeen were the stronger side rather than Rangers and yeah. Celtic Dundee United the third week Aberdeen the fourth week Manchester United the fifth week and Arsenal the sixth week and, and, easy then. and um, my mum eventually says to my dad this is absolutely crazy yeah. you know you know, he needs to make a decision who he's going to yeah. and uh, Hearts were the ones that were really really pushing the young lads because obviously they didn't have any money to, to pay for players to, to yeah. sign so um, they said if you're good enough you'll play and to be fair they were they said so myself Gary Mackay Davey Bowman John Robertson and Stuart Gold all signed wow. uh, for Hearts and we all we all made our debuts before we were 17 I was just going to touch on that you, you signed for Hearts in 1979 and you made your debut at just 16 Aye. years old on the 1st of November 1980 yeah you became the Premier League's youngest ever goalkeeper. Yeah, I think I think that still holds. I think I do. I yeah. spoke to somebody the other day on that, and they 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 had a bit of uh, history on the sort of uh, background of Scottish football and young players, and they they don't think it's ever been beaten either. Um, I think the closest one recently was uh, Craig Gordon a few years back, when but he was a bit. I think he was seventeen or eighteen when he played for Hearts. Um, but I, I was 16 and I, and I was looking at something the other day and possibly we'll cover this later on uh, as far as the Scotland under-18s are concerned but I was looking at some press clippings of, of that era and when I made my debut and Bobby Monker was the manager at Hearts at the time and he goes into the press and my dad's, God love him, um, kept all the cuttings and Bobby Monker says that um, he's going to play me on the, the Saturday against you know St Mirren on the, on the 1st of November because I've been doing really well in training and um, he wants to uh, put me ahead. He thinks that John Bruff, the, the first team goalkeeper, is, is lacking a bit of uh, form and he says I've deserved it because I'm playing better. And so I'm proud of that. There wasn't just an injury to the first team goalkeeper and they didn't have anybody else yeah. to shove in. So I went in, so I, and then obviously, sadly, about three or four months later, I was playing for Scotland and uh, ended up getting a bad injury and, and kind of got curtailed in that. But but I, uh, I'm i proud of that, I must admit. It's uh, one of the other quirks in my football career. I, I played a professional football game in four decades because I played for Hearts Reserves in the 70s Right. Played for first team football in the eighties for Hearts and, and Dunfermline and then the nineties for Dunfermline and Falkirk and then in the, the noughties if that's what you call it yeah. for Dunfermline and, and Hibs. Yes. So there's no many players can say that they've played Probably. professional football in four decades. Super I've touched on the injury, obviously you're saying you sustained that point for Scotland. What what's your memories of playing for Scotland and how did that come <laughs> about? Again, I was very lucky that I played um, for the Scottish schoolboys and my kind of peers uh, in the goalkeeping position was, it was always me that was number one, Brian Gunn, ex-Aberdeen Norwich uh, goalkeeper was number two and Big Gordon Marshall who at the time was at Rangers, believe it or not, before he ended up going right. to Falkirk and Celtic oh. and Kilmarnock and Motherwell, he was the number three. So... I, as, I, as I said, I was always the number one. So from under 15s, under 16s, under 17s, I was always the number one goalkeeper. And I, I was that sort of peer group was Paul McStay, 
Gary Mackay, David Bowman, Billy Davis, Kenny Black, Eric Black, Neil Cooper, Pat Nevin, Brian McClare. You know, so it was a really a good a good group of guys. Yeah. And we had a wee bit of success in that. And um, I was playing for the Scottish under, I think it was meant to be under 18s, but it ended up being a kind of an under 17, 18 side. And we were playing in the Cannes uh, Monaco tournament over in France in uh, 81, I think it was. We were playing Brazil and I'd been doing all right. We were drawing one each last minute of the game. And I, I got a really bad injury. I, was, uh, I had a complete tear of my posterior cruciate. Did you know uh, you were in trouble straight away? I knew it was a bad one. Aye. Aye, I knew it was a bad one. I was at that time. Obviously, I hadn't had many injuries at that time, and yeah. I knew it was a bad one at that time. But you know, particularly with ligaments, it's like a leg break. You know when you've broken your leg, and you know where you've you've torn ligaments because it almost like pops. And I knew it was bad straight away. My actual knee went forward, so it bent forward, and it was quite a bad one. I so just just to sort of finish off in that. How close I was to not getting that injury was Marsh came on as a sub. Gordon Marshall came on on as a sub. He took the free kick. It got headed back for a goal kick, and he took the free the goal kick, and the referee blew for full time. And so that was how close I was to not getting the injury yeah. in the game. And then the next quirk of that was uh, I was told I would never play again. Um, and nine months later, I managed to get back playing. Mm-hmm. What was going through your head at that point? You're obviously just a young boy. Aye, football would be your life. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you, I didn't know anything else other than football. And you know, to, to somebody telling you that you, you know, you just achieved your ambition to become a full-time player, to then suddenly be told, "Sorry, son, you're not going to be playing again," you're devastated. But you know, at that time, I didn't know anything else. So all I said to myself was, "I'm going to try and give it my best shot to to get back playing." And and a good Dunfermline man uh, was the Hearts physio at the time, Andy Stevenson. And Andy obviously was the trainer through you know the period in the sixties, and Andy was very old school with his techniques, and he just simply says to me, "Son, if you work hard, I guarantee I'll get you back playing." And the reason I got back playing was one of three things, and it was a combination of three things. It was one, it was my left knee, and if it'd been my right knee, I wouldn't have done it because I was right-footed, yeah. very predominantly right-footed. Two, I was a goalkeeper, and if I'd been an outfield player because of the twisting and turning, I wouldn't have done it. And the third thing was. Um, there was no wear and tear in the knee because I was only 17. If I'd had it maybe 10 years later, the surgeon said, he said there would be no chance of you playing. But uh, unfortunately, the surgeon um, was a bit of a, a, a fortune teller. He says to me, he says, if you do go back playing again, son, he says, I guarantee you'll have a knee replacement by the time you're 40. And at 42, I had to retire completely from the football, from, from Hibs coaching because I'd had eight operations on my knee and it just wasn't getting any better and the surgeon says enough was enough you know but uh, but I don't know why you want to talk a wee bit more about the Scottish side of things but, of course. but obviously it was a, a group of players that had great careers and, and they achieved pretty pretty impressive stuff for Scotland in that time do you want to touch on some of that? Aye, it was it was, it was really interesting because unfortunately as I says you know I got injured playing for Scotland and um, I was the number one goalkeeper. I don't want. I'm no. The reason I'm stressing this is because what I'm about to say next is because um, the following year, sort of twelve months after this tournament in France, I got the injury. I was just coming back from you know getting back into to some kind of fitness, and it was the same time when Aberdeen had the successful run in Europe. So Brian Gunn had stepped up to become the number one. Marsh was the number two. And a lad called Robin Ray, who was at Hibs at the time, who nobody really, with the greatest respect to Robin, he didn't. He ended up drifting out of the game and playing junior outfield rather than goalkeeping. Anyway, he became the sort of number three, 
So going into the European Championships in Finland in 1982, Brian was number one. Big Marsh then got injured as well. So right. Marsh got injured and then Robin became the number two. And then, then two days before flying out to the tournament in Finland, and uh, Alex Ferguson uh, withdrew Brian from the squad and Eric Black from the squad, from the Scotland squad, because he needed them for the European run. Yep. So I got a phone call from Andy Roxburgh two days before going out saying, Westy, are you fit? And would you like to join us in Finland for the European Championships? And obviously delighted to, to, to go there, and we did. And it's the one and only time that Scotland have ever won anything at any level in, in their whole history. And we won the European Championships. We played Albania and beat them 3-0, Turkey 2-0. And then we played Holland. And at that time, Holland had a really good side. It was Van Basten and Rijkaard and all that type of thing. And we drew one each with them. And um, that qualified us for the semi-finals where we played Poland. And we beat them 2-0. And then in the last game, um, the final, we played the Czech Republic and we beat them uh, 3-1. So unfortunately, I didn't play, but I was still quite proud of being part of that squad. Exactly. Pat Nevin always, uh, he scored, I think, the, the second goal in the final. And they always say it was one of the best goals that's ever been scored by a Scottish player. Right? He beat about four different players and then uh, slotted it in. And they say it was even better than Archie Gemmell's goal in, against uh, Holland. Holland, yeah. yeah so. And, and one guy who was involved back then just kind of carving out his coaching career was Walter Smith Hi. so so as part of the, the coaching team it was Andy Roxburgh was number one uh, Walter Smith was number two and Ross Matthew was connected with that as well who had a long career in Scottish football as well as Craig Brown you know, you learn so much about these these guys went on to have fabulous careers in, the, in, in coaching and in, in football in general and you can't help but learn from them, you know. So, so we were we were very lucky in so much that we had great managers and coaches, but also they had a, a good set of players to work with as well. Brilliant. And obviously, you recovered well from that injury. Hey, you go back to to your heart's days. I, I, I'm guessing you just fell behind the pecking order. Well, the the simple thing for for me was that when I was told I wouldn't play again in, in the eight eighty one, Hearts had to sign another goalkeeper, and uh, they signed a lad called Henry Smith. And Henry ended up playing, yeah. you know, a record number of times for, for Hearts. And we, Al McDonald, was the manager by this time. And he used to say to me all the time, he says, Westy, he says, I've got the best of both worlds. He says, I've got a, a first-team goalkeeper who's at the peak of his career. He, I think Henry was 10 years older than me, so he'd probably be about 28 at this point. And he says, doing really well. And uh, he says, you're pushing them every single day at the training and, and really pushing them. He says, so I've got the perfect world. So, however, it wasn't perfect for me, of course, because of course. I couldn't get in. And at that time, of course, there wasn't such things as the big squads or, or sub-goalies on the bench at the first team. It was either you either played or you didn't play. Um, so I, I was a wee bit frustrated, if I'm being honest with you. And, and that was my time at Hearts. And I, and I knew at some stage I would have to move away from Hearts. And, and that was... Obviously, the opportunity came uh, yeah. a couple of years later. So, at uh, 84, 85, you got the opportunity to sign for Dunfermline. How, how did that come about? Probably, Alicia will probably tell it better than me, but all, all I know of it was that um, Art McDonald pulled me into the, the office one day and says, look, he says, Dunfermline have been watching you. And I think Leash always says that it was a game over at Capolo that he came to watch me play. And uh, I had a decent game, but he says what he liked about me was I was quite a dominant goalkeeper as far as you know, uh, organising my defenders etc. And he says uh, that was what he he was looking for, you know. So when when Neil Leash 
and I, and I spoke about coming to Dunfermline. I'll be honest with you, Mikey, I didn't really know an awful lot about Dunfermline at the time. The Dunfermline were in the third division. They were, you know, competing, but, you know, they, they weren't, you know, they didn't have the success like we'd, we went on to have in the next 10 oh, years. Sure. So it was a big move, you know, and obviously part-time football, etc., etc. So it was... Um, but, but Leash being Leash sold the dream and I bought into that dream and, and I was very I was very thankful that I went because I, I really enjoyed my time at Dunfermline from there. Well, the dream came true, Ian. You signed for Dunfermline, you played eight matches that season yeah. and you kept clean sheets in five of them. Yeah. Tremendous. And you made your debut against Trunra in April 1985, which was a 2-0 win. Yeah. Do you still remember that? I that do, I, I do remember it. The reason being is it was a really bad winter that, that year and... The game had been called off, or sorry, postponed. So we ended up, Miami, my debut on a Wednesday night down at Stranraer in the chucking down rain, and that's the polite version of that. It wasn't a nice day. And Ian Campbell also made his de- second debut at that time as well. I think Pink actually scored, scored. one of the goals, I think. And I always remember uh, Big Youngie was the centre half, and I'd been used to being quite dominant in my box, but he quite liked attacking the ball and letting, and I think it was Shu, you know, before me, Shuggy before me. Uh, and I think Shuggy and him had a good relationship with the other, you know, basically Youngie went to win the headers and Shug stayed in his line. And I always remember halfway through the first half, I came out for a, a corner, took the corner, and he says to me, he says, he says, Wesley, just stay in your line, I'm not used to this big man. You know, and that was, that was my thing. But anyway, it was it went on to that. But just on, just to, to cover off and joining Dunfermline, of course, there was no such thing at that time as social media or the internet or, course, or yeah. the history books as, as, as much as they're defined now. So I didn't really know an awful lot about Dunfermline, but um, I then grew to know to know what a legend Hugh was. You know, and Hugh White had had such a fantastic career. You know, obviously it wasn't through the best of times for Dunfermline, but that doesn't alter the fact of, of how well he did as an individual goalkeeper. So to take his place, one was quite humbling and a bit of an honour, but also put a bit of pressure on me as well as a, yeah. a fairly young goalkeeper because I was. Definitely big gloves to fill, that's for sure. And uh, thankfully, I, I did a decent job. But uh, I, Hugh, Hugh was one of life's really great uh, gentlemen as well. And uh, always, uh, he was always very supportive of me when I went into the team as well. And who were the main kind of characters back then? When you How first, long have you got, Mikey? <laughs> How long have you got? Um, I first went into to that dressing room a bit naive, I would say, because what I was used to was a full-time football club. And I'm going into a part-time club at that point. And of course, you've got all the different trades, uh, professions, backgrounds. And it was quite eye-opening, to be honest. We, we had Hugh and Bobby Robertson, who were doctors and professional people. Course, yeah. And then you had labourers and brickies and you know plasterers and bond workers, electricians, you know van drivers. You, know, you had this broad range of people. And those broad range of people also came with a broad range of characters as well. So that you're asking about who the big characters were. The big characters were the likes of, you know, obviously Norrie was there, but he was a relatively quiet guy in the dressing room. He wasn't a you know, larger-than-life character. But you had John Watson, larger-than-life. Jim Bowie, larger-than-life. Yeah. Then you had you know Bobby Robertsons and the Davy Youngs and the Bobby Forrests and uh, Young Ian Heddle and, and Rowan Hamilton, Trevor yeah. Smith, all these kind of guys. Stevie Morrison was there at the time. Lovely guys. And I don't know whether, again, whether Leash had a bit of luck in it or whether there was a bit of design in Leash's luck, but there wasn't any cliques in that dressing room. Everybody had a good laugh. You know, there was... Um, I, I mean, I know it's the oldest cliche in the world, but played hard, 
worked really hard and then played hard again. You know, and and, and it was a great I think Leash really lucked out in that to be fair. He, yeah. I think he must have thought he died and gone to heaven when, when he got that group of boys together because in a it was a perfect part time football club. You know, and um, sleeping giant. absolutely. And I think when you you think about that, you know, when I first went there, could you have foreseen what would have happened in the next three, four, five years? Probably not, to be honest with you. It was incredible. But it, it was incredible, and it was it, it was a fantastic achievement for not only the football club, but for Leash himself, but also for Gregor Abel, John Jobson. You know. F- Phil Yates, you know, uh, Joe Nelson, the whole group of folk, everybody had a part to play in it. And I think, you know, I, I was just very, very fortunate to have, play a wee bit part in that, that success as well. It seems to me as a fan reading back at that, the kind of players that were all there throughout Leash's whole stint, really. Aye. And the club seemed to mean something to them. They all, they all yes. cared about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I know it's the oldest cliche in the world, but the fans had a part to play in that as well because when we... You know, success breeds success. You know, that's the oldest cliche in the world, but it's a fact. You know, if you've got a good, successful team on the on the pitch, everybody gets on the bandwagon with that. And you know, it's been written so many times, but it was a as a community club and was a community club, and um, the fans played a massive part in, in our success as well. Probably more so than probably people realise. But when we went out, you know, after a a game on a, a Saturday. I, I genuinely, and I mean this definitely from the bottom of my heart, I can't remember a single instant where fans were given us abuse or anything like that. Even if we'd had a you know a defeat or anything like that, it was it was just more, you know, let's look for the you know let's look for the positives and see what's happening yeah. in the next game. And and you you, you thrive in that as a player. It's quite, I mean, it's quite important to our supporters seeing the players in the town. Obviously, yes. it's a different world now with social media, yeah. cap, mobile phones with cameras. But um, I think that was a big thing back then for, for Dunfermline fans, seeing I mean, the players and meeting them and mingling with them yeah. and being friends with them. Absolutely. I, th- I think, you know, friends as being the, the operative word. We used to go out, and certainly at the end of the seasons, we had all the player of the year's dues. There wasn't just one or two. There was probably 10 or 12 at one point. 28 supporters. Aye, and, and we tried our best to, to be part of each one of those. And I think the, the fans appreciated that, but also we appreciated that, you know, because I always say the same thing. Without the fans, there's nothing. And I think we saw that in the last couple of years with COVID. Football's still a game, but when there's no crowd there, it has a, a marked effect on one the atmosphere and actually what you're seeing on the on the pitch, and there's some people that thrive. You know, some players thrive on mm. supporters being there, and some people can hide behind it and and, and and don't thrive in it. But no, I really when I first came to Dunfermline, it was one a bit of an eye opener, but two a breath of fresh air as well. It must have been quite incredible for you, you guys as players, seeing each season the progression Aye. on and off the pitch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean. The first season I was there, uh, we just missed out. The, the second season, we got promotion. Uh, the, the season after that, we got promotion again. And you know, and you just keep thinking, when's this wee bubble going to burst? But the fact of it was, it didn't seem to burst. You know, I think if everybody was realistic, knowing, one, the fan base, and two, the, the financial situation of the club, we were never going to be able to compete at the top end of the league. But I always think this is a, another wee quirky one. My, my birthday is on the 8th of November. And the first season we were in the Premier League, we played Motherwell at Fir Park on my birthday on the 8th of November. We drew with them one each. And that point, 
took us to the top of the league yeah. in November. Yeah. Not not August or September, but you know, forty percent through the season, maybe you know, maybe slightly more than that. What an achievement that is. Oh. You know, from a team that was one part time two years ago and also been in the second division at that yeah. time. You know? Obviously we'll touch on nineteen ninety, but what might have been uh, if Jim had stayed, just yeah. you'll never know. But promotion to the Premier League, eighty six, eighty seven. Yeah. And then 88-89, a 1-1 draw with Meadow Bank, put us back to the Premier League. Yeah. For those five seasons, you were ever-present pretty much. Yeah. You played 216 games, yeah. and 78 of them included shutouts, yeah. which is a, an incredible record. It, it is, because you know, I suppose from my side of it, we've done film, when, when I look at it, my, my record of, of shutouts and, and things like that, you know, there's another 10 guys that contribute to that. But one of the things, in my, again, a quirk in my football career, and it was my old man that uh, recognised this one, one day. It was fairly near the end of my career. I can't remember what game it was I played, but it was, it was certainly a Dunfermline game. And um, he says to me, he says, you know, he says, this is one of the very, very few games you've ever played in your first team football career that hasn't meant anything. Because we were either always fighting for promotion or fighting against relegation. Yeah. There was very few games where it meant nothing. You know, it was like a middle of the table, meaningless game. And again, so having that, the number of shutouts I had in that period, I suppose is quite, you know, important in so much that there was always, it was always a competitive game, whereas it wasn't just a, bo- a boring nil-nil draw because that was an end of the season, by, uh, you know, game kind of thing. But I I must admit the, 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 the five years, the first five years of my Dunferman career, Nobody could have uh, foreseen seen what it was like, but it was just a fantastic place to be. And you know, not only the success we had on the on the pitch, but the club then grew and grew as well. And that was largely, let's be honest about it, largely due to the fans. I mean, I can't remember. I don't know where you have the stats or not, but I can remember somebody telling me that the average home gate one season was nine thousand one hundred or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I think it was eighty nine ninety. Unbelievable when you when you think about that. That's, that's what what an achievement that is for for a club like Dunfermline. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean that disparagingly. I'm just being honest. You know, it's not one of the big eight clubs in in Scotland. It's you know maybe the second tier beyond that. You know, nine thousand one hundred average home game. And you think how strong Rangers, Celtic, Dundee United, Aberdeen, Hibs, yep. Hearts were at that yep, time? Absolutely. And then, and then the other side of that which was sad but just an inevitability of Scottish football when we were driving out of East End you know going to an away game there was the Dunfermline Heart Supporters Club bus leaving Dunfermline the Hibs Supporters Club the, the two or three Rangers and Celtic Supporters Clubs leaving so it's not like we had every single f- football fan as a um, a monopoly you know so we had to earn that right and I think we did earn that right if I'm being honest with you yeah, of course. And then 1990, the summer of 1990, uh, Mr. Leishman is removed uh, as manager. Yeah. What, what's your memories of that kind of time? And when when did you or how did you hear the news? I think I think it was it was a difficult one, Mikey. I think there was rumblings around. You know what was happening. Nobody at all was was happy with the situation. Without going into any too many details, but it's unfair on the people involved. I don't think it was the football club's finest hour. You know, I think if everybody had their time over again, I think they would have definitely handled that differently. I think including Leash as well, if I'm being honest with you. I think, and this is my understanding of it, this might not be factually correct, but this is my understanding of it. I think if Leash was offered the job that he was offered now, 
he would have taken it with both hands because Leash was the figurehead of the club. However, the sort of director of football position that was offered to him at the time wasn't known now at, at that time. Whereas it's now is a very it would be very much the you know a, an opportunity for him to, to grow the club because the technical part of it, you know, let's be honest about it. Others did that for Leash, you know, whether it was Gregor Abel, whether it was Ian Monroe, Phil Bonneman, John Jobson, whoever whoever it may be, you know, David McParland, you know, all the boys that were in the coaching staff, you know, Ian, Ian Campbell. But I just think it was it was handled poorly. I think Ian, unfortunately, his ego got in his road a wee bit as well. He wanted to be the man because he felt he wasn't getting the, the credit that he deserved. But an interesting story about this was about it had been 20 years past that, so I was at Hibs, so it must have been in the early 2000s. We were playing air down at Somerset, and um, Ian Monroe sought me out. And he, and he knocked on the door, and, and he says, you got a couple of minutes? And I says, ah, he says, how are you doing? I says, good to see you. And he says, Ian, he says, I just wanted to seat you out. He says, and I wanted to apologise to you and the rest of the boys. And I says, what for? And he says, oh, he says, um, I just wanted, a, a, a broke up a, a really good side unnecessarily. I just wanted to put my own mark in it. And I know that was wrong and, it, and, I, and I failed within that. And he said, and, I, and this is the first time I've had the opportunity to, to apologise to you, which I thought was was a very good thing for him yeah. to do. And he, he certainly didn't need to do that. But let's talk about me for a second as well. Andy Rhodes was there as well. Yeah, he just signed before Jim. Aye, I think yeah. it was Jim's last signing. His last signing. Rhodes was a really good keeper. Yeah. No, so, so you know, whilst Ian wanted to put his own standpoint, there was no God-given right for Ian Westwater to, to, to play. What was a quirky thing, and I don't know whether you know this story about the, that pre-season. Do, do you know this, this story? So Ian Monroe says to, to me and Rhodes, what do you want to do? Do you want to play half a game each? Or do you want to play full games each? You know? And both of them, me and Rhodes, says, no, we'd prefer to play full games each in pre-season to make sure you can get your eye in. So we did that. And I had four shutouts. And Rhodes lost eight goals. So I then, I'm sure you, you, you do remember this next bit. So I got chosen as the, to start the season. And I think we played, might be been Albion Rovers in the Cup, the League Cup or something like that. And we won three or four nothing. That was on the Tuesday, the Wednesday night. We were playing Rangers in the, the, the first game of the season at Ibrox on the, on the Saturday. And uh, I didn't have a particularly good day at the training on the Thursday. So on the Friday, I was back to my, what I would call my, my normal standard. And me and Rosie sat next to each other in the dressing room. And Phil Bonneman came in with the two team sheets. And at that time, it was the first team were at home. And sorry, if the first team were at home, the reserves were away yeah. against the opposition. So the two teamless went up and uh, Rosie was in the first team and I was in the reserves. And Rosie turned around to me and says, there must be some mistake, Westy. He says, they've, they've got it. And we were laughing about it. And I says, no, no, because I kind of read the script. Anyway, long story short, I went in to see Ian Monroe and I says, look, I says, you know, I, I completely disagree with what your thoughts is. I says, why am I not playing? He says, oh, you had a bad day at the training yesterday. I says, but I've had five shutouts in a row. He says, no, he says, I, 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 I didn't want to trust you against the uh, Rangers. And then after that, that was it. And then the rest of that season, Rhodesy played, if you remember. Yeah. But he got sent off the second last game of the season at, at uh, Easter Road. Right, I didn't know that. So he got sent off. So guess what? Ian Westwater has to play the last game of the season. And the last game of the season was, uh, was Dundee United at home. 
at East End, but Dundee United had to win to get into Europe. So, and at the time, Big Duncan Ferguson was getting touted about going to either Rangers or Borussia Mönchengladbach. Right. So during the game, Big Duncan's buzzing about all that, and uh, somebody asked him at a corner, one of our players, I can't remember who it was, so big, big man, are you going to Germany then? He says, no, he says, I struggle to speak English, let alone German, he says, I'm not going there. But anyway, on the back of that, we drew nil-nil with him. And uh, Smudger Paul Smith came in after the game and he didn't particularly get on particularly well with Ian either. And he came in and he says, ah, oh, brilliant, Westy. He says, you must be the only goalie in history to never concede a goal in the whole of the season. Because I had a, another <laughs> shout, six, six shouts in a row. So I, that was that season. So it, it wasn't everybody's best hour, I don't think, unfortunately. You've obviously mentioned Paul Smith and a couple other players. Yeah. Obviously the, the, the squad progressed pretty rapidly under Leash. Yeah. The likes of O'Boyle coming in and Cosma. Yeah. Um, what, what were your memories of these, these guys? Well... Two things on that. I think um, this man was a complete enigma. We didn't know who he was, what he was. Obviously, he didn't speak English, you know, etc., uh, etc. Et but the first time in the training ground, you thought, he's a player, an absolutely brilliant player. The other story about George O'Boyle signing, but, so the other story with George. So George and, and this man signed more or less the same time from Bordeaux. And there was a lady that was the commercial manager who also did a little bit of this sort of administration for the football club at the time, a lady called Audrey Kelly. Audrey came into the dressing room to tell us that we'd signed these two players from Bordeaux, uh, a guy called Isfan Cosma, who uh, she knew was from Hungary originally. But And then there was this other foreign player, uh, Giorgio Boile. And we're looking, so who's Giorgio Boile? She said, I don't know, Giorgio Boile, it's, it's this guy from Bordeaux. And then when George came in, it was Giorgio Boyle from Belfast. <laughs> and so we ripped her up saying, and she said, oh, I did he? I, I couldn't believe he was an Irishman coming from Bordeaux. That's why I thought his name was Giorgio Boile. So anyway, that was her. Right. But, but both of them were, were, were different class. Um, and that sparked, you know, a, a lot of good players coming into the football club, good professionals, I would think. You know, Ross Jack, Ray Farningham. Uh, what about Joe Grugvey? Doug, Doug was a, he was an odd one, Doug. A lot of good things about him, mm-hmm. but but also sometimes that you think, you know, didn't he quite live up to the expectations that, you know, the, he played at Chelsea, played at Aberdeen, you know. Yeah. Good career. Pedigree, fantastic, yeah. you know. But didn't he quite hit it off, you know, Dunfermline, you know, I don't know. And some some players just, it's just, it's not a good fit, you know, whatever yeah. that, that fit is. But, you know, we had, you know, Shoot Beedies of this world, you know, uh, shoot Rafferty's, just good players, you know, and, and and I think when you look at that squad, again there was some decent decent players in that, and and what, well, and I'm not being uh, negative about the players, but no real superstars, but then you had players coming through the ranks like we Jackie, you know, came through the ranks as well. It was coming at, at that stage, and you think there's some really decent players coming into that, you know, the football club and, and a good pedigree. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Walking Down the Hallbeath Road. We would also like to thank our sponsors at Inverkeething Hillfield Swifts 2017s. The Swifts are an SFA quality marked community group and have competitive teams for every age group from mini kickers through to amateur level football. So if you're interested in youth football, why not check out their website www.swiftsfc.com And you obviously then leave Dunfermline looking for first team football after a frustrating season and you moved to Falkirk Aye. how did that come about? it was it was interesting it was it was actually Big Marsh Big Marsh phoned me up 
And Gordon Marshall, who who's a mate of mine, good good friend of mine, he was at Falkirk and he just he'd just been told that he was signing for Celtic. So um he had says to Jim Jeffries, who was the Falkirk manager, I know Westy at Dunfermline isn't he playing and I'm sure he'd be interested in, in signing. Because at that time there was only two young lads at, at Falkirk, uh, there wasn't any other senior goalkeeper. So anyway, I went, this was the Thursday, I went, sorry, Wednesday night. And then on I, Jim Jeffries phoned me and I went through to see him on the Thursday. And uh, we had the conversation and he, he wanted to sign me, signed a three year contract. And uh, Marsh went to, to uh, Celtic and I, and I signed for Falkirk. Probably at that time didn't really know the, the, the rivalry was as big as it was, if I'm being honest with you. You know, so I think, you know, footballers don't tend to, unless it's the obvious, you know, Rangers or Celtic, Hearts or Hibs, you know, you know, the, the sort of quirky ones, you know, the, is it is it Dunfermline and, uh, you know, Falkirk, is it Dunfermline and Wraith, is it Dunfermline and Cowdenbeath, who knows, you know. Nobody really knows why there's a rivalry. Aye, exactly. But here's the quirk of my, my Falkirk career. I went, and, and I, I started off pretty well. I saved a penalty in the first game of the, the season against Motherwell, and I got on, you know, pretty well with the fans that first season. I ended up winning a few Player of the Year awards. Now, I had big boots to fill with that because Big Marsh was a, a cult hero there. And when I went there, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to be on my game here to do... So, and I did well. See, the second season, I didn't play any differently, but it was like I was a different player. And they were the, the I don't know whether the the rivalry thing had kicked in a wee bit more or whatever. But anyway, I got a couple of injuries as well, which didn't help. And then then they signed uh, Tony Parks, yeah. and uh, Parks he came in. T- Tony was what I call a really good professional goalkeeper. He was uh, is he'd been taught by Ray Clements uh, at Spurs, and you could see every trait in Ray Clements and in, in Parks. And he did well, and he went into the team, and he and he and he played he played fine. I got back in a wee bit um, towards the end of my my stint at Falkirk. But what Jim Jeffries wanted, he wanted to freshen up the squad a wee bit. And what happened was, and I don't know where many people will remember this, but there was a guy called Neil Duffy at Falkirk. And what Jim Jeffries had done was made a, a, an agreement with Dundee that Neil Duffy was going to Dundee. And Dusan Verto and Jamie McQuilkin. McQuilkin, I think, was coming to, to Falkirk. But Jim Duffy, the manager at Dundee, wanted me to go up there as a player coach to coach two, two of the young guys, a guy called Paul Mathers and uh, Michelle Pagot. And he wanted me to go up there. And, I, and he says, look, it'll be short term. He says, because I know there's, I know Dunfermline is sniffing about. He says, we, you know, so I went up there knowing that I was never going to play and knowing that it was only a matter of time before I went back to Dunfermline. So I ended up, um, again, this is going to sound a little bit big-headed, apologies if it does, but I played a, a couple of reserve games for Dundee, one against Rangers in the uh, the Reserve League Cup at Ibrox midweek, and they had, in their 13-man squad, 11 full internationals and three under-21 internationals. Uh, Trevor Stephen played, etc, etc, etc. And I ended up having a really good game. We ended up getting beat 1-0, but I ended up having a really good game. And then the next game, we were playing Celtic. And Jim Duffy asked me to play in that because they were playing uh, the Scottish Cup and they didn't want to risk either Michelle or, or Paul in that. 
and I played in that. And I, I, again, I don't know where people remember, but there was a, a bit of a mad uh, chairman up at Dundee at the time called Ron Dixon. And Ron Dixon is in the stand. He was a Canadian guy, but he was in the stand. And he says to Jim Duffy, he says, uh, oh, he says, I really like our new keeper. He says, um, I know you've just signed him on a six-month contract. I take it we're signing him on a three-year deal and he's going to be playing on Saturday. And at this time... Uh, uh, Bert had come in for me and I was saying like that there is no chance me signing another contract at Dundee so I could I, in a different uh, way I could have possibly stayed on at Dundee but I went obviously went to, to Dunfermline instead So you returned to Dunfermline again a magnificent start you played nine games and have four shutouts again Aye. It's like you'd probably never left. Aye, it was, uh, as I said, maybe, you know, just coming back to your, your, your roots again. And again, it was, it was like I'd, I'd never left. Different bunch of players, of course. Not that many from my previous time. Who were um, you competing with at that point from the number one shot? Well, who I replaced um, was Lindsay Hamilton and John Hillcote. Lindsay obviously left the club that, that later on that, that season. Um, and Hilly stayed on, so it was me and Hilly at that time. So uh, I, I, I really enjoyed that time. Hilly was a good lad, a good young goalie. Probably the only thing that was ever against Hilly was his height. You know, he wasn't the, the tallest, but a uh, good worker, a good pro, and a good laugh as well. You obviously signed for the club under Burton Dick. Yeah. We, we go into the 94 season, try to push, well, 93, 94, and 94, 95, yeah. try to push for promotion. Yeah. We narrowly miss out. Two seasons ago, yep. I think we were top scorers in Britain. Yeah, and then we obviously go out in the playoffs to Aberdeen. Yeah, what's your kind of memories? Uh, well, I remember I was playing. Unfortunately, I'd, I'd been injured, so it was Guido that was playing in, in those those times. Um, I think it was just frustration, Mike. I think it was too frustration personally because I couldn't get back in, and then secondly, you know, just frustration for the football club because we were so near but so far, and you know the big you know dangling golden carrot was the Premier League, and we couldn't get back up into it. So it was it was disappointing not not to get up, but I I can't that's the only thing I can really say about that is it was it was frustrating and disappointment to be honest with you. And you go, then go into ninety five ninety six, yeah. which obviously we'll touch on the now. It was a really special season. Yeah. Uh, come the end but was there a lot of pressure on you guys that season obviously near misses I I think that was exactly the thing I think there was two parts to it there was was the the definite um, pressure of just trying to get up because we had been the nearly men for so you know a couple of seasons before that you got to remember that league was really competitive that league really competitive I mean you had Dundee United when you look at their squad Let's be honest, mate. They should incredible. Have, they should have walked that that league. You know that was a really really strong squad, very much a Premier League squad, and then you had you know Morton, you had uh, um, Falkirk, St Johnson, I think St Mirren were in it as well. Yeah, I, think. I think Falkirk were in the Premier League that. Or season. were they? Were they in, um, but it was like a six horse race aye, towards the end of the season. Morton, you know, yeah. obviously, and then Airdrie, you know, the perennial challengers with, with ourselves as well. And my old man used to say to me all the time when he, because he normally came to virtually every game I played, he much preferred playing, watching the games in the first division stroke championship, i.e. the second tier, because every game meant something. Yeah. Every game was competitive. Every game there was always something happening in it because there was either a, a local rivalry or a or a, a competition ri- rivalry, and he says um, whereas you played in the you know the Premier League sometimes you knew you were going to get scalped you know three or four off of Rangers or Celtic, course, some yeah. weeks and sometimes potentially Aberdeen, Dundee United, Hearts and Hibs as well, but you know in the, the first division 
it was always really tough, you know, competitive games, which made it hard, obviously, to get out of the league as well. But yeah. but but that that season, you know, I, again, I didn't start the season. Guido played his part in that run, and I think if you have been honest with, with each other, there was a lack of consistency of a lot of teams in that 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 league that that year, and. Um, we get to obviously the, the turn of the year we're, we're up there or thereabouts but then the, the bad winter kicked in and then obviously the tragedy with Norrie happening in, in, in the January of that, that year. I think from all of our points of view that was a, a, a very much a pivotal point in that season. That could have either destroyed us as a football club and as individuals or it could galvanise us and say right okay let, let's do it not only for ourselves but let's do it for the big man as well and I think all of us had that kind of mentality that's you know supported by the the fans which were played a massive part in that season as as we, as we know but you know that period over january and february it was a tough for everybody you know and and i think we had some good results in that period but yeah. we also had a, a bit of a tricky time of it as well and then i came in just you know at the end of february there and i think i can't remember where i played the last 10 or 11 games or whatever whatever it was and had a wee bit of success, but it wasn't like we were winning nil all the time. It was always two ones or three twos, or you know, it, it was a lot. It was a lot of things happening in that game, and I, I contributed sometimes with it, and other times, you know, uh, the, the boys up the other end of the park did, did their thing. But you know, to go into the last few games of the season competing and having a chance, you know, what you know, it goes down in folklore. The last three or four games of that season, of it really does. You know, and touch going back to obviously Big Nori, yeah, uh, that. That fateful day in January. Yeah. What what's your memories of that? So I wasn't playing in the first team at that time. So at that time the, the reserve games were a Monday night. So we we didn't know again it was before really mobile phones and, and internet and you know social media was about. So when we arrived for the game on the Monday, by that time the the, the, the news had just broken that uh, Norrie had passed away on the, the Monday night, uh, sorry, the Sunday night. Yeah. Bert says to me, do you want to play? And, uh, and I says, well, I says, aye, you know, what would the big man want? You know, would he want you know, us to, to curl up and, and cry in the corner? Or would we puff our chest out and go and do it for him. It must have just been a state of shock. Oh, it was a huge all, state all of shock. Guys. You know, absolutely. And, and I remember the next again day, um, we all got, we, everybody was taken into the, the, we didn't train, but, and Bert and Dick asked us all just to sort of tell stories about, you know, Nori. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house, you know, and, and it was really emotional. Mm. And then, of course, you know, the the situation with the, the, the fans flooding in to, you know, put the, the memorial at the home end of the, the ground. You know, you know, even now it's quite emotional just talking about it. And I think, you know, going back to, to that period, I, I can't stress enough, there was, you know, either breaks people or makes people. And I think the one person that doesn't get anything like the credit he deserves is Craig Robertson. Craig Robertson did a fantastic work for the club he, he stepped into Norrie's captain's armband very dignified very uh, professional and led from the front and I always say of that that period and that season you know there's one player that doesn't get the credit that they deserve and, it, and it's Craig Robertson you know for, for how he yeah. performed that season and how he managed you know to to take over and that you can't take over but you know replace Norrie in, in, in the captain's role as well because 
there was an, an awful lot of emotion that season and, and that could have spilt over to you know, negative performances and things like that, but it was the opposite. It kind of galvanised us all, you know. Yeah. You touched on uh, Airdrie yeah. earlier. Obviously, there's a, a, a good story about an away game at Broadwood against yeah. Airdrie. Do you want to... Aye, so, so this was, I think it was in February. Airdrie were uh, ground-sharing up at Broadwood, I think, up at uh, Cumbernauld. And it was the time where there was only three subs and you didn't need to have a goalkeeper as a sub. But sometimes Bert and Dick chose to have me on, on the bench and sometimes they didn't. This time they did. So I can't remember the... I can I can never remember if it was two one or one nil that game. I can never remember what, what what way around it was. But we were winning by a goal. We'd used two subs, and uh, Mark Miller had been sent off halfway through the second half. So big Andy Smith was um, as Andy always did. Heart, you know, on his sleeve, uh, sleeves rolled up over his shoulders. You know, he was absolutely blown through his backside he'd worked so hard as a, as a lone striker for the last 20-25 minutes we'd use both subs and Bert turns around to me and he says to me he says will you go on Westy as an outfield player just to waste 30 seconds and I looked at him I thought he was winding me up you know I says outfield and he says yeah he says just to go on just because Andy's gone and I went aye Aye, if you, if you want me to do that, aye, no problem. So anyway, bear in mind what I said earlier on in the, in this podcast that I've never, ever played outfield, don't, don't ever play outfield. In, uh, and it was it was tended to be not long after the back pass rule came in. So I struggled with the back pass rule, as everybody remembers. But lo and behold, uh, the flying mallet, as everybody used to call me, it comes on up front for Andy. And we thought it was only 30 seconds to go. But I think the referee's watch had stopped, you know, so... Um, I, I touched the ball three times so the first the first touch I had was it was a throw in for ourselves got played up the line somebody flicked it on and I suddenly realised I've got the ball up my feet <laughs> but I've also uh, also realised that the whole ground's laughing because I'm probably at least 10 yards offside so I was probably one of the first goalies ever to be uh, called offside <laughs> the second touch I had was um, I don't know if you remember at that time but uh, Airdrie always played a five at the back so, as I said, I was up front of my own trying to run about. Now, I'm just waiting for the referee to blow the whistle, thinking that it's got to go now. But anyway, uh, the left back got it. So I blocked off the long ball up the line. He played it inside. I went inside. I'm now absolutely breathing through my backside at this point in time. Gets to Jimmy Sanderson, who was the sweeper. He passed it to the right centre half. I'm now, I now, this is now a 40 yard run. I've never even got my, my first breath, let alone my second breath. It then gets played to the right back and I've gone out and by this time I really can't run any further so I've absolutely thrown myself into this challenge. Slid tackled, hit the ball out for a throw in. The guys followed through, split my head wide open at the side. There's blood pouring out the side of my head and I'm thinking if the referee sees that I'm off the park and we're down to nine men, let alone ten men, not knowing how long he's still going to have to play. So anyway, I'm trying to hide uh, this cut with my hand. It goes up, they get a corner and then the ball gets played in from the corner. I'm kind of on the penalty spot-ish. And uh, it comes to me. And I do this mad daft overhead kick. Just about break my neck. And the referee blues for full time. So that's my whole... T- my outfield career consisted of being caught offside. 
<laughs> making one slide tackle, splitting my head open, and trying to do an overhead kick and uh, making a fool of myself. But anyway, we won the game, which is the important thing. We then go on a, a fairly decent run between February and, and then April. Yeah. And we get to the, the big game at Tanadice. Now, the, the week leading up to that, you can, you'll remember the media were basically saying Dundee United had the league. Yeah. So was that a big big thing for It was a motivator, aye. It was, it, was, it was very famous that I think uh, somebody had uh, asked all the managers who they fancied for the title and everyone, a bar one, had said that they thought Dundee United was going to win it. So there was a lot of motivation around that. Dick being Dick was had that pinned up on the notice board, you know, for the whole of the week and then obviously in the, the dressing room at Tanadice before we went out. But I always say about that game, comfortably, it was the best atmosphere in an away game I've ever played in. Dundee United made a complete backside of it by giving us the, the whole of one side and um, they never they never realised what an influence that would have been on us. And then we went and had the game and then obviously a couple of minutes into the game, Stuart scores the goal. And then, to be fair, after that, I'm not saying it was one-way traffic, but you know, they, they, they were quite dominant in the game. And I, I, I say every time I talk about this game, because people are always very kind to me about this game, saying, oh, you had a show, it was one of your best games. It actually wasn't one of my best mm-hmm. games. I actually didn't have that many saves to make. What people did do brilliantly was defend... Big Toddy, Big yep. Craig, and then I'm, I'm going to go back to the same person again. Craig Robertson was absolutely outstanding that game. Nothing went past him. Big Toddy and, and Craig were magnificent in the air. The, every every person played their part in that game. Yep. And then obviously the famous thing at the, the end, you know, uh, they got three corners on the bounce. It gets played into the box and literally the last minute of the box, and I came out and, you know, take, took yep. the high cross and everybody's flying over the top of me, I pick up the ball and then kick it out and then the ref blows for full time, you know, so if I hadn't taken that ball, who knows, I think Christian Daly was flying in above me at that time, so, aye, it was a massive game for the football club and, and what a victory it was, and, and especially against the team that we were playing against because yeah. they were a really good side, a really good side. Yeah, and then we go into the last game of the season <laughs> against our rivals Airdrie yeah. at home. Uh, I think needing to win to guarantee Aye. depending on other results Indeed. but what, what was it like that week oh, leading up to that game it was one of these ones you're counting the hours counting the minutes to, to the game I think you never want to say that you're you're confident and you're, you're but probably if it had been about against anybody else you'd have probably said Aye, I'm very confident in this but because it was against the Airdrie and because the Airdrie were such a, a rival to us and we never ever ever got an easy game against uh, Airdrie it was always going to be a tough one, so um, when we uh, when we played them on the Saturday, I think the game sort the game was uh, delayed ten minutes before because to allow the crowd in, and it was one of these usual airy games. A lot of good football played, a lot of blood and snores, you know, it, you know, chances at both ends. Roger was playing for uh, Airdrie at the time. He had a few decent saves. I had a couple of wee saves at my end. I think um, Airdrie hit the post at one stage in the first half. But Big Andy, I think it was Mark Miller, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, yeah. Mark Miller crossed. And, and Andy, fantastic goal. You know, Andy, Andy Smith scored in the, the first half. And then we go in 1-0 up. And, and I'm not saying we're comfortable, but we were trying not to hear what was happening elsewhere, particularly down at Capelo. But then... Uh, it comes out for the second half and I don't know where we Doddy had given them a rocket or whatever but they came out flying and they got a bit of a jammy goal it was a one it was a goal that um, it was just a quirky hit off the guy's heel to bring it away from me and 
can't remember who it was. It might be Robo, I think. And then it broke to the guy, and he ended up Peter scoring. Peterson. Aye, and it was it was a bit of a, a a bit of a lucky, quirky goal, to be honest with you. But then, you know, Wee Murray does the mad run up up front, and uh, Rodri takes him down. And Mark Miller was the coolest guy in, in Fife at that time, and uh, never any doubt in his mind. And I'll be honest with you, I never had any doubt in, in no. my mind either. And he slotted it away, and uh, I think he put Rodri the wrong way. Uh, you know, a lot of the urban myths saying that Rodri was never going to save that penalty, but I would like to think that you know Rodri, being the professional he is, yeah. would never, never do that. But he, he didn't, he didn't need to make a decision when he was saving it or not because he went the wrong way for the penalty. And then we held out reasonably comfortably, if I'm being honest with you, after that. And then obviously, with more or less ten minutes to go, we knew that uh, yeah. Dundee United and Morton had drew at, at Capelos. So that meant we were champions regardless of what happened. Yeah. So. Uh, and it was one of the best ten minutes you'll ever have, you know, that because it's such a strange feeling. It was. It was so relaxed, and oh, you want you, everybody, including the injury players and the injury management. All, all they wanted to do was the referee to blow full time, and just you know, for them to go off and for us to celebrate. And it was kind of a long, you know, seven, eight, ten minutes, you know, but uh, it was probably worth the wait because at the end of it, what atmosphere there was at the end of it. And I'm sure there was a few drinks. There was a couple. Well. There was a couple of beers taken that night as well. It was, it was just fantastic, great atmosphere, and again very poignant because of memories of, of Nori and, and all that. So, aye, it was. Uh, we did it for the big man, but we also did it for for the town and the club as well. So you returned to the Premier League aye. again, and it's a strong Premier League again. Rangers, Celtic, yeah, a lot of superstars and they two teams alone. Hey, what was your memories of that season? Mike, I'll be honest with you, I played first team football for 20 years, so when you ask specifically about seasons, you think, mm, is, am, I, am I thinking about the right the right, the right, right type of people at this point in time? That era, I'm not saying it was that season, but that era, I always think those Celtic and Rangers teams at that time were really, really strong. You had the likes of you know Van Hoydonk and Cadetti and you know various players like that, for and Reggie Blinker and... Uh, Burley and you know Paul Lambert, you know all these type of players that played for for the, the likes of Celtic. Then and the Rangers side, you had Loudrop, um, Gascoigne, Negri, you know Goff, you know all these players. You think just fantastic footballs, and and at times it was almost an honour being you know competing against these guys. I'll tell you another quirk in my football career. Again, it was somebody mentioned this to me. It wasn't me that remembered this. It was somebody that mentioned this to me. Was that I played 20 years first-team football and I was lucky enough in all those 20 years to play, in my era, home and away against every club in Scotland. And I beat every club in Scotland home and away with the exception of Rangers. It was the only team that I didn't beat and the twice that my, the, the teams that I played for beat them, both times I was injured yeah. and I didn't play. Yeah. And I was in the Scottish Cup uh, for, for Dunfermline mm. and one against... Uh, Falkirk as well and I wasn't playing I drew with them a few times yep. but never ever managed to beat them I had and one of the other things was I really enjoyed playing at Ibrox and for some reason touch we'd always seem to play quite well um, you were asking me about what it was like to play them uh, against them I don't know whether it was that next season after we won the promotion or the season after but we got beat 7-0 at Ibrox that happened a fair bit during that era, didn't it? Right. Well, in my <laughs> football career, I lost three, four, five goals many times before. Many times. I never lost six. I lost seven once, and it was that game. And you got to remember, we were 3-0 down with, I think it was only eight minutes to go, and we got beat 7-0. But that was the, 
the era of Gascoigne, Loudrop mm-hmm. and Negri. And I, I always say the same thing when people mention that game. I defy anybody to have said that they wouldn't have been taking a, a right hiding off of that team because they were absolutely outstanding. No, no. We weren't great. You know, it takes two to tango, and I know that. And I got man of the match that day and I lost seven goals. Wow. Well, we, we finished, I think, fifth that season aye, in the Premier aye, League, which yeah. obviously was fantastic. We yeah. go into the following season, I think it's the second game of the season, we go to Parkhead and, and we beat Celtic. Aye. aye. What was your memories of that one? Well, I, I think I think always with Celtic, I was lucky in so much that you know, Bingy was the Bingy score. David Bingham scored and Hamish yeah, got the Hamish, penalty. Yeah, Henrik Larson's home debut. I think. I think so. I I think at that time that I'm not saying we had a huge deal over Celtic because they, they beat us numerous times as well, but there was never this awe when we played Celtic because we 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 had a wee bit of success as a football club against them. So you know, you know, beating them two 0 uh, at Parkhead was what a result that was, and to be honest with you, it could have been a couple more as well. You know, latterly as well, I always Bingy remembers Bingy saying that he had a couple of chances that on a different day, you know, they would have possibly gone in, and I had a couple of saves, but it wasn't it wasn't like the normal Rangers or Celtic, you know, away game where it's like shooting in down my end. So you know, you've got to give credit to the boys, and I, I think particularly that day, I think Bingy was outstanding and. And, you know, again, there's another name you just mentioned there as well. A, a complete and utter unsung hero for Dunfermline was Hamish French. You know, the typical player that you think, decent player, but you only realise how good a player he is when he's not playing in your team. And I think Hamish particularly is epitomises that. And a bit like Craig Robertson, you know, the two players that are a bit unsung heroes, a bit, you know, not flamboyant, not, you know, singing it from the rooftops, but... You know, just really, really good pros, and and uh, Hamish, and it's well, his his length, his career, tells itself. You know, you still see him now in the town, and he still, th- you still think he could be playing today, even though he's the same age as me. I think he's just turned fifty eight. I think you know Hamish, but um, I, you know, so I fantastic memories of that period of time as well. Well, we had a, a decent season that season. Then ninety eight, ninety nine, the club started to really change. The yeah. stadium getting redeveloped, yeah. and a lot of players from down south started to yeah. come in. And you lost your place to Lee Butler. Yes. Um, what well, was it like competing with Lee? Well, I, I don't know if you remember, but I, I we played the first. I played the first game of the season, and um, that the story behind that was we played Celtic at Parkhead that day, and uh, they had just stopped Rangers winning the ten in a row. So the atmosphere, and I always say the same thing, it was the loudest I've ever experienced a football stadium in my life when they sang you'll never walk alone they unfurled sorry they unfurled the the premier flag they sang you'll never walk alone the referee blew to start that game and the cheer I, I honestly you could feel the vibrations through, through your feet it was incredible 10 minutes into the game or, or a couple of minutes into the game I think Andy Smith got injured as well um, and then not long afterwards I made a save off of Craig Burley, but I knew straight away I'd, I'd got a bad injury. Pip came on and uh, and Lee wasn't on the bench at this point in time. And Pip came, Pip the physio came on and he says, he says, I think it's a bad one, Wesley, but you're going to have to stay on. So anyway, I stayed on and we looked at it at half time and my knee was, it was again, my bad knee anyway, and my knee was swollen out of all recognition. And Bert says to me, he says, do you think you can just carry on? He says, because you were one leg's probably better than, you know, playing with uh, an outfield player in goals. So anyway, I did. However, 
right after half time wee boy Reggie Blinker yep. got to the byline and he cut it back and I dived out full length and as soon as I dived out full length my actual knee went pop and I knew f- so for the last maybe half hour of the game I literally couldn't move my left leg it was completely locked and we lost I made one save in the second half and it was to my right hand side every other goal that I lost and we, I think we got beat 5-0 yeah. and it was three goals I got lost into that left hand side and then I was out for six months and Lee came in and, and did really well but you're asking about Lee Butler mm-hmm. I'm a fully signed up member of the goalies union I absolutely I always defend goalies um, it's always the easiest thing in the world to criticise the goalie however I always try and defend my, my goalies and I'm always very passionate because when I played there wasn't really such a thing as a goalkeeping coach so it was always the senior goalkeeper that took the training and you had to have that camaraderie because you were asking your peers to do things you know and it was always up to me to take the training and I was very lucky that you know all the players you know whether it was Rosie, whether it was uh, you know Butts you know whoever it was we had a, a, an utmost respect for each other but particularly Rosie and particularly Butts uh, Lee Butler it was a real friendship as well and one of life's really good guys and uh, I've got so much time for Lee he's, he's just one of life's gentlemen but also a really good lad as well you know, so he, he played really well that season as well. He didn't have a particularly successful season, but he, he did actually really well that season. I couldn't get back in. He was, it was the only season he was at the club. Aye, that's he right. Left, didn't that's he? right. And but he Bert, left. Bert left that season as that's well. Right. That's right. Dick takes over, obviously. We're really struggling. And, and we go down yep. back to the first division. And then we started that season pretty strong yep. under Dick Campbell. Yep. Uh, gunning for promotion. Then, obviously, Dick loses his job and Jimmy Calderwood comes in. Yep. So what was it like when Jimmy... Well, Jimmy, Jimmy came in... Jimmy came in and he had, and this is absolutely no respect to Dick Campbell or Bert Payton or any of the previous managers that I, I served under it, it uh, either Falkirk, Dunfermline or, or, or Dundee. But he came in and it was almost like a different animal. A continental approach to training, so disciplined in everything that was done. I know this is going to sound boring, and I don't know why you've spoken to any of the other players about this at that time, but you knew every Monday... Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, exactly what you were going to do. It didn't really deviate an awful lot. And um, everyone thinks, maybe that's quite boring. But what he did was the standard was so high of that particular drills or, or exercises you were doing, it never got boring. And, uh, you know, he brought in, Dick had brought in players, but he developed these players, you know, you know Craig Brewster, uh, Stevie Crawford, Nippar, you know, all these players that Dick and Bert were, Dick was trying to bring through, he got the, really the best out of. You know, he brought in other players. I think Bully was there at that time as well. Yeah. You know, Lee Bullen came in. And the training was very focused, hugely high standard, all about the ball, all about possession, just what you'd expected to see nowadays. Yeah. But it was very much a new way of, of for us to do it. And... Um, he said to me, to, to be honest with you, uh, he, he took me in, uh, so literally as soon as he signed, and he says, Wesley, just to let you know, he said, I don't know you. He says, um, but I'm letting you know that, he says, every club I go to, I bring my own goalkeeper in. And he says, I will be bringing them in. He says, but what I expect of you is to be professional and, and get on with it. He says, but um, I've also spoken to a lot of people within the football club, and uh, I'm going to offer you, at that time, my contract was coming up at the end of the season. 
and he says, I'm offering you a, a coaching role, not a playing role, but a coaching role at the end of the season, and I hope you're going to take it up. And uh, by this time, obviously, I think I'd had six operations on my knee at this point, and I'd done all my goalkeeping badges and, and was really passionate about goalkeeping, uh, and sorry, the coaching side of it. So it was music to my ears because it was exactly what I wanted to hear. So Jimmy Calderwood was brilliant, and obviously Jimmy Nick, Jimmy Nickel was his assistant, and Jimmy's just dynamite. You know, Jimmy is, if ever there was somebody put on this earth to be a number two, it was Jimmy Nickel. You know, unbelievably knowledgeable about the game, coaching second to none, but a character, a real larger than life character that all the players could go to if they had anything wrong or whatever. He was the good liaison, he was the buffer from Jimmy. Jimmy was trying to keep the players at arm's length, which a lot of managers do. And to be fair, Dick was like that as well, you know, but, but, but Jimmy had the, you know, because we didn't know Jimmy Calderwood and we didn't know what his techniques and, and values were and all that, Jimmy Nickel was a perfect foil for him. Mm. I, again, not sure whether that was luck or design, but, you know, the, the two Jimmys, well, went on to know how successful that was, not, not only at Dunfermline, but other places as well. But that, that period of time was really interesting because Jimmy Calderwood obviously kick-started that season again and then obviously we, we went on to, to win promotion but yeah. uh, again, that's not luck that's you know good coaching, good management and uh, having a good bunch of players and if, if dare I say it you know, maybe having the checkbook out as well which helps as well which yeah. maybe others maybe wouldn't have had but uh, no, it was it was a good time at the football club I must admit and that, that proved to be your last season Aye. you played against Morton on the last, 6th of May yeah, last, the last game last ever game for the club yeah me and Hamish yeah, the last ever game aye. and that's what Jimmy says to me you know he says to me and Hamish that because yeah, he'd offered Hamish a coaching role as well and he says um, you know I'm going to play at the end of the season and he says just as a farewell to the fans and again it was great and at that time I thought I was going to be a coach at Dunfermline but that the Friday before that game I'd been approached by uh, Art McLeish um, to go to Hibs and my old man always said the same thing to me he says um, when you're one of the boys on the Friday it's quite difficult to be one of the, the managers or the gaffers on the, the Monday it can either work or it can't work and with the greatest respect to Dunfermline you know I, I lived in Edinburgh um, literally just down the road from Easter Road down at the shore and you know Hibs were going really well and uh, they had a fantastic squad there as well and it was a relatively easy decision for me to make to go there because I was getting a playing coaching role as well so uh, I, I went there but I had fond memories with the Dunfermline my second time just equally and they, they always say you should never go back to somewhere but I can genuinely say I had as much success and enjoyment the second time round under Dick and Bert and latterly the two Jimmies as I did under uh, Leash yeah. and that's that's unusual for somebody to have that, that experience you know so you, you go to Hibs and you're there till 2004 yeah. uh, in a coaching role. Yeah. Come 2004, you make the decision to leave football. What, yeah. what was the story behind that? It, it was just simple. It was just one injury after the other. And and I was I was coaching at the time, but um, I'd had, I'd had a, a major operation on my knee uh, in 2003. And basically what they'd said was, um, and I'm not going to go into the gory details, but it was literally the last throw of the dice before you got a knee replacement. And they said at that time, now I would, I was just turned 40 at that time, sorry, just coming up to my 40th, because I was actually in plaster for my 40th birthday. 
the surgeon said, he says, look, he says, you need a knee replacement now. He says, you're far too young to have it. And he says, your role that you do as in a goalkeeping coach is quite a, a physical role. And he says, uh, and I was taking a huge amount of painkillers every day and sleeping tablets to get to sleep at night and all that. And eventually the surgeon gave me this operation and he says, look, he says, I hope this gives you 10 years before you need a knee replacement. So if I go on a year and a half later, it's been a complete failure. And I'm in just as much pain and the swelling and everything else. And eventually I went to see the surgeon again. And the surgeon says to me, he says, I think you should, you should try and get a sedentary job. Um, try and get more a desk job rather than a, a physical, you know, not diving about because I wasn't diving about, but serving and on my feet for a number of hours a day. But when the surgeon says that to me, you know, I had 25 years in the game, Mikey. If somebody if somebody says to me in June the thirtieth, nineteen eighty, when I walked into Time Castle for the first time, son, you're gonna have twenty years playing, and then you're gonna have another five years coaching, I just says, where do I sign? You know, and I, I'm I tend to be a quite a positive guy, and I and I says to myself, look, I've had twenty five years at it, I wonder what the next twenty five years are gonna be like, and and I, I can look back, I genuinely have no regrets in my football career. I have one simple regret. And it's all about injury, you know. Even the, you know, the, the leaving of Dunfermline the first time, you know. But that's football. But what you can legislate for is injuries, and I, I do genuinely wonder what my football career would have been like if I hadn't had that injury, because, you know, the world was moister at that time. You know, I'd played in the Hearts first team. You know, I was sixteen. You know, just coming up, just turned seventeen. You know, people were saying a lot of nice things about me. Who knows? But and obviously, internationalists as well. Yeah, all of these level. things. You know, all of these things. Who who knows? However, that is my only regret. I don't have any other regrets. I genuinely was never the best goal in the world. But what I could do every day was look myself in the mirror and say, "I've got my, my best shot." Because I really love my training. Everybody always prided. I, I prided myself on my fitness, but also others commented quite positively about you know how fit I was for a goalkeeper. I probably did more of the. Um, the gym work more than most ever, you know, people did at that time. I started doing the sort of coaching thing more than people had done. So I kind of gave it my best shot. And for 25 years, I absolutely loved my life as a professional footballer and coach. And just to finish off the, the Hibs side of it, I went to Hibs thinking that Dunfermline was a really good football team. And I went to Hibs and I went into that dressing room. Bear in mind... I was a player coach, so I was part of the coach. I was still part of the playing side of it, and it was an absolute eye opener for me, Mikey. And so much that I thought the standard at Dunfermline was decent. Yeah, another world, different world. You had Frank Sozzi, you had Mixu Patalainen, you had Ulrich Larson, you had Ulysses De La Cruz, all Did- Didier Gatt. However, there was one person there that um, was probably the most gifted player I've seen playing with is Russell Latipi. And, you know, away from the football pitch, probably didn't he focus as much on his game as he possibly could have. But, oh my word, what a player he was. But Frank, Frank's the same age as me. So Frank was 36 when I went there and I was coming up 37. And I always say the same thing. If that's what Frank Sozzi was like at 36, what a player he must have been when he was 26, 27. Because he was a different class above anybody else he was light years about ahead of others in their 
uh, terms of thinking and ability to read a game, etc. And you know, you, you don't play for France and you don't go, you know, win European Cups without being, you know, genuinely world class players. And you know, that's a bit of a, a an old cliche, world class player. But I genuinely think he was the best player I played with. I think he was he was certainly comfortably better than this van. You know, and that's a, and that's a big yeah. uh, compliment to pay because his fan was a decent player as well. But uh, I, you know, uh, Frank was world class, world class. And I and I went there and I, I was on the bench in a cup final. Uh, I was part of the coaching thing for two other, you know, uh, European runs and a league cup final. With the greatest respect, I didn't have that at Dunfermline, so it wasn't it wasn't a negative going to the Hibs. It actually ended up being a positive when I went to Hibs, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Hibs. But you look at that time you were at Hibs, where O'Connor's Riordan's all coming through. It was really exciting at that can point. I, can, I, Browns. can I give you a wee example of that? So, through my, I, I was there for five years, and during my five years, I'm going to name you a football team. And I'm going to tell you, do you think this would win the, the Premier League at that time if that team had stayed together? So you had Irish international goalkeeper Nick Cogan, Swedish international goalkeeper is Daniel Anderson. So you, you can take any one of those two. Yep. Then you've got Stephen Whitaker, Gary Caldwell, Ian Murray, David Murphy, Ivan Sproul, Scott Brown, Kevin Thompson, uh, Derek Riordan. Gary O'Connor and Stephen Fletcher. An incredible team. If that team doesn't win the Premier League, I don't know what does. All international players again. Unbelievable. And they were all came through that same period when I was at the coaching. And I'm not saying I had any influence in that. It was just, it was just luck I was part of that yeah. process. And they were all the young lads. And then on the back of that, you had all the, the good pros that I've mentioned previously. The Frank Sozies, the Russell Adapies, Mixel Patalainens. Craig Brewster. Craig Brewster. You know, um, John O'Neill... Grant Brebner, you know, all these players you think really good, good mm-hmm. pros, you know, uh, Stuart Lovells, uh, Uli Larson, you know, Uli de, Uli de la Cruz, you know, brilliant players, Matt Jack, you know, all players that you think, wow, you know, what a, what a squad it was. And I, and I enjoyed my time there because I went through three managers. You know, Alex McLeish was the manager when I first went there, he went to Rangers, uh, Bobby Williamson came in. Bobby got a bad press, but Bobby was a really good manager and he yeah. brought on a lot of the kids. He brought in Scott Brown, he brought in Kevin Thompson and then obviously Tony, Tony, Tony Mowbray came in with, with Mark Venus and took the other guys on to another level again. So, you know, it was, it was a good time to be at Hibs and I was really gutted when I had to leave, but leave I had to, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what did you do post-football? Post-football, I, I, um, I, to be honest with you, I'm not trained for anything. I did okay at school, but I wasn't brilliant. But obviously I had all my um, coaching certificates and, and uh, side of things as well. So through an ex-Dunfermline player, my, my best mate in, in football, David Young. Um, David Young's a, a partner in a, a consultancy, an engineering consultancy company called Thomas and Adamson. And he put out the feelers for me. And I got a, a, an interview at a, a building services company called Arthur Mackay's. Now, Arthur Mackay's at that time were just developing their facilities management uh, division. And Paul Mackay, the owner's son, interviewed me and says, look, he says, I know you're not qualified for anything. He says, however, he says, you've, um, you've got a really, really good manner about you. You're obviously a relationship kind of person, good uh, character. And he says, I want somebody to do a bit of business development and uh, account management on the FM side of things. So that's what I did. And then, coincidentally, I ended up starting studying at, at Lauder College. At this time, I'm now living in um, Dunfermline. I was up at uh, 
Dalek Grange, um, just me and Stevie Crawford, our houses backed on each other actually, funnily enough, just coincidentally. So I uh, I, I joined Mackay's and then start, started doing my studies and I ended up um, doing uh, a master's degree in, in business administration. And just when I finished doing that, I got headhunted by the company that I'm with now, a company called FES. And FES are the company that I work for now. And I'm, uh, I was, when I first went there, the general manager for the East of Scotland. Uh, at that one time I had about 160 guys reporting into me and that was good, I enjoyed that period but then I, I morphed into the role that I do now and I'm now the customer relationship manager for the whole of the company so I look after the, all the client liaison and mobilisations and, and key client leads for the whole of the company across the UK so so I really enjoy it, I'm really enjoying that so that's what I do now Brilliant Ian, just before we finish to wrap up we're going to do a feature called the top 5 Okay. so this, this applies to your time at Dunfermline only so it okay. could be your first stint or the second yep. so the first question is the most memorable game you kindly gave me a wee heads up on this before coming, so I've actually got two if that's okay. Go for right? it. So the best away game is the one that we've talked about earlier on in this podcast was the Dundee United game. Not for how I played. I played okay and I was lucky enough to get a shout-out, but I say every time people talk about that, it was the best atmosphere of played in an away game. I think the Dunfermline players literally sucked that ball into the back of the net and got us over the finish line at the other end of the game. I think the atmosphere was second to none. The boys really rallied to the, to, to that day, and I think it was. And again, against the team, it was as well because United, give them their credit, was a fantastic team. So I think, as far as most memorable away game, that was it. As far as the home game was concerned, you probably well you wouldn't remember this because you're too young, but um, a lot of people not even probably remember much about it, but. The second game of the season when we were first in the Premier League, we played Celtic at East End and we beat them 2-1. And uh, I was lucky enough to have a decent game that day. And I always say that I had, I made one of the saves of my career and nobody really remembers it because it, it, they didn't know I made the save because I, I touched it on at the post. It was a diving header, I think, from Andy Walker at the front post. But we ended up winning that game 2-1 and... Uh, from a purely selfish point of view, that was because I, I played really well in it because it was we were new into the Premier League and because it was against Celtic and I ended up getting man of the match for it. So that that was the most memorable game. Brilliant. Um, and uh, who was your best mate at the club? If you could pick one. Well, it still is David Young, a good mate of mine from from the, the football days. Lucky enough to, to play with a lot of good guys. Me and Paul Smith travelled together for many years and Smudger uh, is a was and is a good mate of mine. But I suppose still keeping contact with Big Young, you know, and uh, myself and the and Davy and the the partners and wives get together every few months and we go out for a, a bite to eat and talk talk turkey and then we also um, myself, Davy, Bobby Robertson, and uh, Graham Shaw, another ex Dunfermline yeah. player. The four of us play golf uh, four times a year as well. So I play really badly and the other boys play really well. <laughs> Uh, next one, best player you've played against? I thought about this long and hard. Again, I was I was very very fortunate to play against you know numerous brilliant players. You know whether it was goalkeepers, whether it was defenders, whether it was midfielders, whether it was you know forwards. Within that, there's there's numerous that spring to mind. You know the McCoys of this world, the, the the Mo Johnson, who I think is probably one of the most underrated players I ever played against. I thought he was a fantastic player. 
you had the foreign lads, you know, sorry, the Paul McStays of this world, but you had the foreign lads as well, you had the likes of the, the Brian Loudrops, the, the Canios, you know, these type of things. But the one player, nah, it's a bit quirky as well, but just for the time that he played and the influence that he had, and I don't know whether it was, he was lucky how he played against us or not, but Gascoigne, when he played against us, was always probably, on his day, almost unplayable. Mm-hmm. And the, the time I mentioned earlier on when we got beat 7-0 at Ibrox, nobody could have played against him yeah. and, and, and did a better show than that. He was absolutely outstanding that, that day. And I think, you know, if you're talking about that, probably probably Gaza. Gaza. Yeah. yeah. Good choice. Uh, Favourite memory of your time at the club? If there's one memory you could... One memory. There's so you know. There's so many memories. I think you know. We've talked about them earlier on. You know, during the the chat today, winning the promotions was always a highlight. I think you mentioned very briefly the Medibank game. I always think that was probably one of the the most pressurised games we've ever played again. And again, this is going to be very selfish, Mikey. But you you probably wouldn't remember. But in the very last minute of that game. It's one each and we need to win. Sorry, we need to get a point to, yeah. to go up. Um, they get a free kick, 25 yards out. And the boy Stevie Logan played right wing for uh, Medibank. He absolutely creamed this one into the top corner. And I managed to get across and, and touch it around for the junction of the bar and post. And then just shortly after that, the referee blew for full time. So that's a, a good memory because it was an important one. But, you know, you can't go too far beyond the sort of Airdrie game when in the 95-96 season just purely because of the emotion behind it you know and, and the background behind it you know with Norrie passing and it for, was for him and because of him that we got we won promotion so probably that's probably my best memory but also tinged with an awful lot of sadness as well of course well that's us Ian that's absolutely brilliant so the first episode an absolute legend so thanks again Ian you're more than welcome Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast, which is available on all popular platforms such as Apple iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Thanks to our guest on this episode of Walking Down the Hobbyf Road. This podcast was produced by Jan Mokiewicz and music supplied by Stuart Dusty Miller. We look forward to speaking to another former player in the next episode. Thank you for listening. And now we are on